Would you turn to Colossians? We're going through the book of Colossians, as you know, verse by verse. Uh, today we'll be reading Colossians chapter 1, and we'll be focusing on verses 24 and 25. Colossians 1, verses 24 and 25. The Word of God reads, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I do my share on behalf of his body, which is the church. In filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions, of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Last time we looked at the necessity of um, our sanctification, that a true believer whose heart has been regenerated by the Holy Spirit will continue to have his faith rooted and grounded in Christ. Both of our eyeballs are locked onto Christ. And the believer's new heart is chained to his personhood. Even his faculty of reason has radically been altered by God. You find new reasons growing each day more and more in you. When you make decisions in your life from the house you buy to the job that you do to the people you hang out with, you always tend to ask yourself, will this glorify God in my life? Will this bring shame to my master? Or is it that Jesus is going to be magnified in this? And these decisions that you make, based on these reasons, they, they drive unbelievers mad. They say, well, why is this man forfeiting this paradise? Why is he um, rejecting his job? How is it that this woman is wearing what she's wearing? How is it these people are wasting a whole day worshipping God when they could have been enjoying their life somewhere else? And this lifestyle and our journey of sanctification seems to be unreasonable to the lost world. They don't understand. It throws them off the track. It leaves them scratching their head. Now, why is this? Why is it so? The answer is obvious. And it's not an intellectual issue. It's a moral one. I want to explain to you, even at the start of the sermon. Unbelievers set their hearts on this world. They look at the next 10, 20, whatever, 30 years of whatever is left of their lives. And they strongly want to believe. They convince themselves this is it. That this drop in the ocean of what is remaining of their lives on earth to them... It's eternity. 
then they subjugate their faculty of reason to this false version of eternity that they came up with. And in the light of this lie, they don't get it. They don't see why we do what we do. Why we make those sacrifices for Christ or for one another. They don't understand why. It doesn't make any sense to them. But let me take it one step further. Because nothing frustrates the people of this world more than when they see a Christian rejoicing in his suffering. For Christ's sake. No one. It it frustrates them. They keep on saying in their mind, why is this man rejoicing when he's suffering as a Christian? Why? What is the answer to this question? How is it that because he's a Christian, he's losing his status? His, his reputation is being dragged through the mud. His friends left him. His home is broken. His health is deteriorating because of Christ. And yet, he is still rejoicing. Brothers, a mature Christian is like an eighth wonder of the world. He's a phenomena. He's mind-boggling. Why? But you can't control a man who rejoices in his suffering. Right? You can't control him. You chuck him in the lion's den like Daniel, you find him praying. You throw him in the prison like Peter, and he falls fast asleep. You entice him with the treasures of Egypt. What does he do? He considers the reproach of Christ greater riches. Just how do you control people like this? You can't. Why? Because nothing binds these sort of Christians to the system of this world. If you like, they're outside of the matrix. Their joy is not considered, is not conditioned by the passing pleasure of this world. They settled in the fact that their treasure is found somewhere beyond their graves. And they anchored the meaning in life, their sense of well-being, their purpose to Christ, to His purpose, to His coming kingdom. You can put it in another way. What is a Christian? You can... Define a Christian to be someone who invests his time, money, and effort in the eternal bank of Jesus Christ. And because no one can touch this bank, so is his joy never shattered by suffering. Well, we we can continue uh, on and on talking about joy and suffering and I think we come to an end of this introduction for this sermon and we want to go straight to Paul. We want to hear it straight from his mouth. Paul, how do you make such radical statement? Again, read it again, verse 24, that first phrase, Now I rejoice in 
my sufferings. How do you make such a claim? Rejoice in suffering where everybody wants and yet nobody wants. Everybody wants joy. Nobody wants suffering. How do you reconcile the two together, Paul? That's what we want to look at today. But first, let's just break down the first, this first phrase. I want to see some, some things in it that help us to set the pace and the direction where we're heading today. First word, now. Now, this word now is normally placed... I don't know if you've noticed this. It's a place when there is a new idea is presented. It's like a full stop at the end of a paragraph. And he's basically telling you, I'm about to start a new paragraph with a new idea. That's normally the case. Paul here just finished with his introduction. And he's about to start uh, the, the, the body of, of the letter. And so he says, now. With that being said, I believe this word here means a lot more than just end of a paragraph and, and the beginning of a new paragraph. Because the word now here speaks of a literal now. Meaning in the current present time, now. He says, as I'm writing this letter to you, Colossians, I am rejoicing while I'm undergoing suffering." One more thing to note in this phrase. It says, I rejoice in my sufferings. It is plural. It's not singular suffering. The Apostle Paul had so many sufferings in his life, hasn't he? Among all the apostles and his first disciples, no one has gone through much sufferings like Paul did. And yet, at the same time, no one expressed his joy and wrote much about joy like Paul did. Let me read to you some passages in the scripture. 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four to 26, it says, five times, as Paul's speaking here, he says, five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. I suffered at the hand of the Jews here. And verse 25 Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. Yeah, he speaks of his suffering at the hands of the Romans. Then he says in verse 26, I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, in dangers from robbers, dangers from countrymen, dangers from, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. Suffering at the hands of the whole world here. People kicked him around. They slammed shut their doors on his face. He wasn't welcome anywhere. In other passage, passages, he says that he was homeless. That he was considered to be the scum of the world. The dregs of all things, he says. He would sleep at street corners. Unwanted. Rejected as a downcast. Second Corinthians chapter 4, he tells us that he was afflicted, that he was confused, he was persecuted, he was struck down. 
But more accurately, while he was writing this letter, the sufferings he was experiencing was imprisonment in Rome. He was a prisoner. He was accused of being a criminal. And to add salt to the wound, false teachers took advantage of his um, imprisonment and they accused him to be a fraud. And this man was drowning in sufferings, but yet, in the midst of all of this, what do we see him doing? Rejoicing. And it wasn't just a written word, but he didn't mean it. He meant every part of what he said. He was actually rejoicing. Now, before we go any further, we want to note a few things, some negative things of what he did not do. Please note, in this phrase that we read, what he did not do. He didn't complain. He didn't say, oh, it's not fair. I've been serving so many years. Look at me. I've grown old. I'm having gray hair. And this is what I get? Sufferings? No, he doesn't do that. There's no grumbling. There's no whinging. He's not a complainer. Second thing, please note, he doesn't submit his resignation to his fate. What does this mean? <clears throat> you know, you hear some people say, well... You know, you've got to take the good and the bad of being a Christian. You know, you win some, you lose some. Oh, well. And then he begins to counsel himself and he says, Well, you know, Paul, sometimes you feel like you're on the top of the mountain. Other times you feel like you're at the bottom of the valley. Silavi. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, Well, you know, you've got to get your acts together. Pull, you, pull yourself up. Be a man. Accept what comes your way. No. This is not Christianity, brothers and sisters. We are never meant to be in a neutral ground at the time of suffering. What does he do? He says he rejoices in his suffering. He doesn't run into sufferings. He doesn't run away from sufferings. He rejoices in his sufferings. What does that mean? Does that mean he's laughing and smiling and dancing? Well, to be sure, he still grieves and there is unceasing anguish. But there is yet beneath these layers of sufferings, there is that Rhythm, unbreakable rhythm of joy. You can imagine someone like him. Storms, howling of the storms, horrendous, fearsome storms, and yet he's standing in that center praising God. The Bible tells us, you throw Paul in prison, what does he do? He sings praises to God. Acts 16.25. You chain him, 
What does he say? Go ahead, lock me up, but the word of God is not chained. Philippians, we've been going through Philippians chapter 1, verse 12 says, Now I want you to know, brethren, that my circumstances, what circumstances? Imprisonment, chained up, locked up. My circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And in verse 18 says, What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in this, I rejoice. Yes, and I will rejoice. Wow. Paul is a conqueror. He's victorious over tribulations. You can't control this man. You can't threaten him. You can't entice him. And he precisely writes his attitude towards sufferings to those Colossians. Why? So that they can take a look at him. Why? So they would imitate him. So that they too would become joyful in his sufferings for Christ. Are we? Are we, brothers, suffering for Christ? Are we? And if we are suffering for Christ, this is very important. Are we rejoicing in our suffering for Christ? Are we? Why? Why? What motivates us? What motivates us? Why are we suffering? Is it suffering for Christ is a ground for rejoicing? We want to look at this passage and we want to study what we can get out of it to learn, to know. What is it in Paul that made him rejoice in his sufferings? We're going to look at four reasons why we rejoice in the sufferings for Christ. But the first one, it's meant to be three. The first one is freebie. It's not even in the passage, but I thought I'd throw it in there to you because I have special love for you. So we'll have that one extra reason. Well, the first reason why we rejoice in the suffering for Christ, which really is not in this passage, but I was moved to put it in there, it's because it is a proof that our union with Christ is authentic. It is a very solid proof that we do truly belong to Jesus Christ. Now, where do we get that from? 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says, Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will what? Will be persecuted. If we don't suffer for Christ then our claim that we are Christians is false. It is a hogwash. It's a facade. You don't really desire to live a godly life. You're not a Christian. What's the proof? The proof is this, that the sons of darkness is at peace with you. You're not troubled by them. They're not harassing you. Jesus says in John 15 verse 21, Remember the word that I said to you. 
a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, and oh boy, did they persecute him. They will also persecute you. It is inevitable. What they did to the Lord, they would desire to do to you. The Lord is not here. He's risen. And we are an extension to the Lord. And the hatred of the world must expel somehow. And we are here. If we desire to live a godly life, we'll suffer persecution, brothers and sisters. We can't outsmart Jesus. You can't say, Jesus, I'm a Christian, I'm your follower, yet, yes, the world hated you, but you know what, Jesus? I found a better and more clever way. I figured out how to be godly and yet be loved by the world. No one can ever out-clever out Jesus. Peter tells us in First, First Peter chapter four, verse 14, "If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed, blessed, happy. Happy are you when you're reviled for the name of Christ. How joyful should you be? Why? Because he continues on and he says, "The spirit of glory." And of God rests on you. You've been tagged. You've been marked that you are one of His. Happy are you. Brothers, what price tag would you put in knowing for certainty that you are a Christian? And if the cost of knowing that is sufferings, no worries. Bring it on. We still have the better end of the bargain. What joy should fill our hearts, brothers, to know for sure that we are saved. Right? And if the, if the means to have this certainty is suffering for Christ, then praise God. Eternal joy is awaiting us. Well, that's one reason in the scripture that tells us that we can be joyful in the midst of sufferings. Secondly, Paul here in his passage could, re could rejoice in his sufferings. Why? Because he viewed his pain, his sufferings, as for Christ. Let's have a look at the middle of that, of that first verse, verse 24. In the middle there it says, In filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions. <clears throat> Paul here identifies his sufferings to be for Christ. What does it mean, lacking in Christ's affliction? Well, we know that Jesus suffered as he accomplished salvation for us, right? And Paul here, through his sufferings, he's spreading that same salvation to others. Some people think, oh, well, Jesus 
lacking something, lacking afflictions? In what way is he lacking afflictions? Is his suffering not enough for us to be saved? Well, absolutely, it is enough for us to be saved. He just said earlier on that it is because of Jesus' blood that we are already reconciled to the Father. It is not about the accomplishment of salvation. It is about the spreading of the salvation. What does this mean? Where is Jesus now after he accomplished salvation? Where did he go? He ascended to the highest of heaven. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. Right now, is Jesus suffering? No. Well, how will people be saved? Through the preaching of the word. And it is through the preaching of the world, uh, the, of the gospel. There is suffering. And it is this suffering that Paul is talking about, that filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction. So Paul here, he views his sufferings as an extension to Jesus' suffering. That's why he says so many times that he suffers for Jesus' sake. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 10, Therefore I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties, for Christ's sake. Again, in 2 Corinthians 4, he says, Always being delivered over to death for Jesus' sake. Even his imprisonment, he never viewed himself as an ordinary prisoner. Right? He wasn't a prisoner of Rome. Yes, he was prison in Rome, but he was not a prisoner of Rome. He never violated any civil law that he was prisoned because of. Why was he a prisoner? He tells us in Philemon verse, verse 1, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And we know this. Paul always considered himself with reference to Christ. He's a prisoner of Christ. He's a slave of Christ. He's an ambassador of Christ. If he was still a Pharisee, if he was still a Jew, a teacher of the law, he would have been a free man. But because he belonged to Christ, he suffered. And it's like he's saying, I'm suffering because of what happened to me on the road to Damascus. When I saw his face, when he called me by name, while I was on my way doing what? Murdering his people. He chose me to be his vessel, to testify of him. And he forgave all of my sins. A one look at him, one look, and radically transformed my life. The love of God was shed abroad on my heart. Paul, brothers and sisters, always remembered Christ and what he has done for him. And so he counted it as an honor to suffer for Jesus. It was his privilege to suffer for him. He said to the church of Philippi, chapter 1, verse 29, For, you, for to you it has been granted a gift, a good gift, for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. 
to whom to know whom you're suffering for it turns your prison cell into a palace and what Paul is saying here to the church of Colossae, don't weep for me. Don't waste your tears on me. In fact, I am thankful to God that I've been honored, I've been granted such privilege to suffer for Jesus' sake. It's an honor. It is a privilege. It is an expression of gratitude our Lord Jesus when we suffer for his name's sake. Now there's a third reason and perhaps more specifically why Paul was joyful in his suffering was because he was he was a lover of Jesus' church. He had a servant heart. He was selfless. He had deep concern for the edification of the church. You see, he didn't just love the head and ignore the rest of the body. No, no. He loved the head, that is Christ, as well as his body. That is the church. And the evidence of his love for the church is indeed his sufferings. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 27, it says, I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is that daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And he speaks even more individually within the churches. And he says, who is weak without my being weak? Who is led into sin without my intense concern? Second, Second Timothy 10, chapter 2, verse 10, he says, For this reason I endure all things for the sake of those who are chosen. Paul had deep, strong love for his Savior, and this love radiated and it transferred to the body of the same Savior, on that of that Savior, the church. Paul committed himself to protect the flock. To edify this flock, no matter the cost. And so in verse 24, he says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for whose sake? For your sake. And then he continues on and he says, and in my flesh, what does that mean, my flesh? That is to say, the physical pain that I'm bearing, I do my share on behalf of his body. For his body. The word on behalf is the same as the word for. For his body. Whose body? Jesus' body. Just to make sure. He's not left us confused. He specifically mentions, he adds to it, and he says, which is the church? The body of Jesus Christ, the church. Can we see how mystically united we are to Christ? That, that when we suffer for the church, we are actually suffering for Jesus Christ. In fact, this is, why, and perhaps this is where Paul drew this um, 
analogy from is that when he, before his conversion, when his name was Saul, and what does the scripture says? He was breathing threats and murder against whom? The disciples, the Christians. What did Jesus say to him? Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting my disciples? Is that what he said? Why are you persecuting my church? No. Why are you persecuting whom? Me. Brothers, we have to put a pause here and ponder and reflect. How precious are we to Christ? That when we suffer, it is as though his own body is suffering. Beautiful, isn't it? Paul continues on in verse 25 and he says, Of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God, bestowed on me for your benefit. Paul is saying here that those who oppose Christ were also oppressing Paul. Why? Because he was benefiting the body of Christ. He was actually helping the church to know the truth, to grow, to be built up. And this is precisely why he actually was imprisoned in Rome. And we can read this in the book of Acts, especially in starting from Acts uh, 21 all the way to the end. Or you can even read it in, in Galatians. When he asserted the fact that the Gentiles were equally welcome into Christianity as much as the Jews were. That, that Christ had accomplished justification, redemption, reconciliation, and it was as effective for the Gentiles as much as it was for the Jews. When, when, when he stood his ground, and he affirmed the fact that anybody, it doesn't matter the ethnic background, Anybody and everybody that comes to Jesus Christ through faith apart from good works is accepted by God. And that infuriated the Jews. Their blood boiled. They couldn't simply accept the fact that Judaism is now over and it was replaced by the church. And what did they want? They had it Paul so much, they wanted his blood. But despite his sufferings, what did he do? He persisted. He was firm. He was standing his ground. And he taught the same thing over and over again. And so they ended up putting him into prison. So for whose sake was he put into the prison? It's for the church's sake. For the church's sake. And Paul was saying here basically to the church of Colossae, if it wasn't, that I stood my ground for your sake, so that you would know the truth about Christ and the freedom and the salvation that you have for Christ, I would have been a free man. But here I am. Here I am. I am imprisoned in order for you to enjoy your freedom in Christ. Well, very well. This sounds good. So far, we understand what's going on. We know why Paul endured such suffering for the church. We get that bit. But how is it that he was rejoicing over that? Why? Well, number one, don't you think that the Colossians would have been so grateful that the Colossian church was made up mostly of Gentile believers? And if it wasn't for Paul, 
they wouldn't have been believers and they wouldn't have had this liberty they enjoy in Christ, then surely they would have been thankful to Paul and he was thankful that they were appreciative, perhaps. But more than that, something far more important than that, we know that Colossian church, they had false teachers that were creeping in, right? And they were spreading their lies. And what was the main lie that they were spreading? Basically, it boils down to one thing. Jesus is not enough to reconcile you to the Father. You've got to either add some good works, you've got to pray to angels, you've got to do other stuff, because Jesus is not enough. And when Paul refuted this false teaching, not only... By him making the claim that his teaching is authentic because he received as a revelation from Jesus Christ. Not only that, he didn't refute the false teachers while he was living comfortably in his apostolic palace in the Vatican City somewhere. No. He was suffering for them. He was suffering in order for them to ensure they receive this message. And I would have started thinking, well, if he was telling us a lie, why would he suffer for it? But he's writing this letter with his own blood, as it were. His suffering has not gone to waste. No. What happened? It functioned as an agent to confirm that all his teachings are true. 100% true that Jesus is indeed preeminent, that his blood is actually enough for everyone that believes in him to be accepted by God. That they were complete in him. And what is the evidence? He tells us in his verse 24, my sufferings for your sake. In my flesh, he says, my afflictions, which are an extension to Jesus' affliction. Galatians 6, verse 17, for I bear on my body the brand marks of Jesus. And he knows that. He knows that his afflictions are irrefutable proof of the truth that he's proclaiming and that the false teachers could never rebuttal. So he's rejoicing over that. And he says, it's it's worth it. It's worth it. He loves the body of Jesus Christ so much that he says, if if what's going to take for you to know that you are free in Christ is for me to suffer, so be it. It's worth it at the end. I rejoice. I rejoice. Okay. Fourth reason. Another reason why he's rejoicing is because his joy in his sufferings. Now, this is very important, especially what we're about to do today. His joy in his sufferings makes the proclamation of the gospel most effective. Most effective. Now, for this, you're going to have to use your brain a little bit, but don't you worry. I tried my best to use my brain during the time when I was preparing and I worked this out for you. So you're going to have to follow me and then test it for yourself when you go home. If you remove the modifiers that he placed between these two verses, verse 24 and 25, if you remove these modifiers and you simplify the passage, what do you find? You find this strong connection between the first and the last phrase. So let me read it to you. Now 
I rejoice in my sufferings. Why? So that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Here is a strong connection between him rejoicing in his sufferings so that he might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. Now, Jesus made this very clear from the beginning. In Mark 8.35, Jesus says, Whoever loses his life for my sake and the Gospels will save it. Our Christian life will be a life of testimony to Christ. That's what it's meant to be. And it is paved with sufferings as we are becoming Gospel beacons. But it's never meant to be a miserable walk. It's ever meant to be a joyful one. God ordained it this way, brothers and sisters. And you see this most clearly in the early church. They were preaching the gospel, right? And then uh, they got held by the council, by the Jews. They flogged them for preaching the gospel and they warned them not to speak of Christ. But what did the disciples do? They came out rejoicing because they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Wow. Look at my wounds. Look at my bones. It's for Jesus. And I started praising God for that. God ordained that our Christian life to reflect this. We are to live for the gospel and to lose our lives for Jesus. And as we are sharing the gospel, we will suffer. But in our sufferings, we are to do what? To rejoice. We are to rejoice. Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 11, Jesus says, Blessed are you when people, what? Insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Then in verse 12, the upper punch, rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. You know what Paul is saying here again? Paul is saying that without rejoicing in my sufferings, I wouldn't be able to fully carry out the preaching of the word. In other words, he would not be as effective in his evangelism. You want to be effective in your evangelism? I'll give you three steps. Three steps of how to be effective in your evangelism. I don't think I can write a book and be accepted by any publisher nowadays. But here are the three steps. Share the gospel, suffer for it, and then rejoice and be glad. How come? How does this work? Why is this? An effective way to evangelize. Rejoice and be glad when I suffer for it. Well, I want to finish the message by helping you to connect the dots. It begins with this. It begins by you going and sharing the gospel. Whatever. Knock, knock, knock. 
door knocking and you share the gospel this way or at home or work. And then what happens? You suffer shame. You suffer insult. What happens? Your parents will kick you out of the house. Your husband will put you down. Your son rejects you. Your boss fires you. Persecuted. Suffering for Jesus. Then what happens? Realistically speaking, if you're faithful in this way, well, first thing going to happen is that your pride is going to kick in. And you say to yourself, don't they know who I am? Do they have any idea what kind of person I am? I'm, I'm Alex. I'm John. Yippee-doo. And you're kind of keeping wrestling in your head. And then keep on saying, how come they put me down? You have no choice but to face your fear of loss of finance, whatever. In your sufferings, you will come to a point that you feel like you're paralyzed. Your ruling desire to control the situation is short-circuited. Why? You don't know what to do. You don't know what you can do next. You attempt to resolve your conflict while you continue to share the gospel. But then you fail in every attempt. And then what happens? You come to the end of yourself. You get on your knees. You begin to pray to God. Like Jehoshaphat said, and you say, I don't know what to do, but my eyes are upon you. And then you pray to God to take away your sufferings. But what happens? God ordained suffering in the first place. It has been granted to you to suffer for Jesus. Then you will begin to ask the right questions. What are the right questions? You begin to ask why. You begin to think, well, why is it that God ordains suffering for me? Not in the sense that you're angry at God and you shake your fist. No, you want to know what is it in me, God, that you want to change? What is it that I'm holding so dearly to that you want to get rid of? And when you begin to ask these right questions, God begins to visit you with profound visitations of grace. And while you're broken in sufferings, He begins to mold you. He begins to shape you and change you. And what happens in this process is amazing. That's why we call it amazing grace. Why? Because in this process, brothers and sisters, you begin to experience Jesus Christ to be far more near to you than He has ever been before. You begin to detach your heart from what was once precious to you in this world as Jesus becomes more glamorous to you. He becomes more pleasurable to you, even more precious than your family that rejected you. You begin to want to identify with his sufferings through your suffering. And you would say with the Apostle Paul that I may know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. 
being conformed to his death. And in your communion with God, you begin to experience rest in him that surpasses all understanding. And then you will rejoice in your afflictions. You will. You will leap with joy in your sufferings. Why? Because only then all the worldly treasures will become like dirt. All glory and glamour, the value of fame and finance will diminish in your eyes. And the face of Christ will shine and will be the only diamond that you would seek after. And I submit to you, brothers and sisters, that this will make your evangelism far more effective. Why? Because so much as you are drinking of this fountain of living waters, while you are hurting, the world would look at you and ask this one million dollar question. Isn't this man suffering? Isn't he hurting? Haven't we been condemning him and putting him down? Why is he so joyful? What's the source of his gladness? Where does he get his strength from? Who is his God? Why? He must be a powerful God. Some mighty God. And God will be glorified through your sufferings when you rejoice. You see, brothers and sisters, God would bring winds of persecution into the tree of your life so that the roots of your, your roots would grow deeper into Him. God would bring storms into your life. A bad teacher at school, a nasty manager, a family member at home. God would bring angry storms into the boat of your life so that the anchor of your heart would be wrapped around Christ. You begin to yearn for Him, long to know Him. And so when persecution comes knocking on your doors, you would say to Jesus, Jesus, to whom should I go? You have the word of life. To where should I flee? I'm so desperate for you. And God would answer you with his amazing, beautiful ways. Ways that cannot be uttered. And while you are in pain, because of Christ, you're still the most content person in the world. The most joyful person in the world. Happiest person in the world. And people would ask, how is that possible? Come in the midst of a storm. And every arrow would point to the fact that Jesus is mighty, mighty to save. Powerful. What an effective way to evangelize, brothers and sisters. To rejoice in your sufferings. What does this mean? To love when you're hated. To bless when you are cursed. To serve when it's been so rudely demanded of you.
Well, there are many more reasons why we ought to rejoice in our sufferings for Christ. But it begins with this. It begins with us being faithful. Love the body. Even when you suffer for it. Don't always ask, oh, what does the body do for me? No. God gave you the body as a blessing to you so that you can serve Christ by serving the body. And when you're not getting anything reciprocated back to you, what do you do? You give up? You walk away? No. You rejoice. Rejoice. Go and evangelize. What happens when I'm put down? Do I walk away? No. Be faithful. Continue to evangelize. And as God is refining you, molding you, by bringing persecution to you, stay there. Don't move away from being a faithful witness of Christ. No. You go further into Jesus Christ and say, I need you. Cleanse me. There is something selfish in me that is holding me back from being a faithful witness. Let him replace the pride, the hurt, the pain with his joy, with his strength. And demonstrate that. Show that to your unbelieving family members and to your unbelieving friends and people at your work. Show them that our Christ is such a powerful Christ that even though you are hurting, you still can rejoice. Amen? Let's pray. Lord God, what an amazing thing. We praise you, God. We do not serve a weak God who sucks life out of us. Like the Muslims do. Like the Orthodox or the Catholics do. Now we serve a living God. Who sustains us. Who meets our needs in every way. In every corner. A God who is able to fill our hearts with joy, so much joy, and it overflows from us. And it becomes a living proof of how mighty you are, Lord. May you continue to strengthen your church. May you continue to pour out your joy in their hearts so that we can endure till the end. And rejoice in our sufferings. In Jesus' name, amen.